You're listening to Lost in History with Scott Miller. Hi, everybody. We're going to take a little bit of a break today from our normal format and chat with an award-winning journalist and author, Andrew Nagorski. Andrew's going to tell us about an American Army officer, Raymond E. Lee, who played a key role in rallying American support for Britain in the years before World War II. Andrew spent three decades as a foreign correspondent and editor for Newsweek. He was bureau chief for that magazine throughout Europe and including in Moscow, where in 1982, he received kind of what I consider one of the highest honors that somebody can earn when um, reporting on an authoritarian government. Uh, He was kicked out of the country. Most recently, he's been writing books, uh, seven in total. His most recent, 1941, the year that Germany lost the war, is a fantastic read. Uh, I highly recommend it. He's got another one coming out in the um, spring of next year. Uh, Look forward to that, and hopefully he'll tell us a little bit about it. Andrew, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Scott. So before we talk about Lee, why don't you set the stage for us a little bit? What was going on in the United States that uh, impacted his work? The key thing that was going on was a huge debate on help for Britain, which was under attack from Germany. Germany, of course, had, in Nazi Germany, had, had, had occupied most of continental Europe. They'd scored one victory after another, culminating in the defeat of France. And now Britain was out there alone. The question was, should the U.S. help them in what way and go how far? The isolationist movement in the United States was still very strong. Uh, There was a sense after World War I, as we were told that to send our troops, this would be the last time we'd have to go save these Europeans from their own mess. Of course, we didn't, the war did not solve anything and and, and then the rise of Hitler and, and, the, and, the, and the subsequent conquests proved that the, that conflict, the conflict was only expanding. And so you had this debate and, it, and even President Roosevelt in 1940, who was running for his third term, felt compelled to assure voters that he was not going to send American troops back to Europe a second time. Mm-hmm. So it was a delicate dance. Roosevelt certainly understood that Britain needed help. Uh, I think he was very much inclined to to give help, but the question was how, and how do you get around that whole isolationist sentiment? So for Lee, as now the military attache in in Britain, he finds himself in the midst of of this debate. Mm -hmm. So tell us about Raymond E. Lee. So aside from his name that uh, sounds like the Civil War general at first, what kind of guy was he? He was, yes, he was free. He was born in St. Louis. He'd studied civil, civil engineering at the University of Missouri. He was not a West Point product, but he soon decided on a military career. He served very ably in, in, in uh, World War I uh, as, the, as the commander of an artillery unit. Uh, he was decorated. He then came back and, and had a variety of postings in the U.S., uh, and then even in the Philippines. And in 1935, he's sent to Britain as a military attache. He's a lieutenant colonel at that point. Uh, now, another thing to realize about Lee is that he's from a family that was very Anglophile. 
All their ancestors were from Britain and they were very proud of that. So he had a natural affinity for Britain. He was well read. He, he, he liked to wear Savile Row suits. He, uh, he was, was sort of, he immediately blended into good society, as they say, in London. And he was very sympathetic to the British. And when, when, the, when the bombing of Britain began, the Blitz, he was someone who wanted to show his support for Britain at every turn and to find ways to, to, to uh, make sure that the U.S. became a staunch ally. Mm-hmm. And so when he landed in the um, embassy in London, the ambassador at that time was Joe Kennedy, who wasn't the greatest Anglophile in the world, I think it's safe to say. Um, That's putting it mildly, yes. <laughs> so how did they get along? Was it kind of the old English-Irish rivalry? Um, Kennedy, of course, being of Irish descent, or was there something else going on? Oh, before we go any further, I should add that Joe Kennedy was the father of future president uh, JFK. But that's a that's a different story. Yes, he was definitely. Well, first of all, when when uh, uh, Lee came to the embassy in '35, Joe Kennedy was not yet the ambassador. But okay, he he is he comes he in '39 when when. Germany invades Poland, the war breaks out, he's sent back to the States to tra- train U.S. troops on the, on the supposition that they may have to get involved in this war. And then he's sent back to Britain as things are looking very bad for Britain as France is falling. Kennedy is ambassador at that point. And Kennedy, Kennedy as you say, he's, he's a, a very emphatic Irish descent has no no great love of, 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 of the English, although he liked the court of St. James, all the, all, all, all the trappings of power and, and royalty. And, but he, he had two main ideas in his mind that were completely contrary to Lee's. One is that, look, we have to, Britain is never going to win a war with Hitler. Hitler's armies are so strong. Uh, they should just cut a deal with Hitler as if that were possible and, and sort of surrender. And uh, therefore, the U.S. should not even consider helping Britain in any significant way. Mm-hmm. Now, you would have thought immediately that Lee and him would be at, 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 at Dagger's end, but it, Lee was very smart and diplomatic, and in their personal dealings, they did okay. But uh, Lee was very clear in his in his diary, in his letters, that he found Kennedy to be very crude, ill-informed, <laughs> and basically wrong. Uh-huh. And, and it's interesting that Roosevelt, who had sent Kennedy, of course, to London, also did not trust him for those, those same reasons. And he began sending emissaries to London, people like Bill Donovan, who, became, who, who mm-hmm. next founded the OSS, the forerunner of the CIA, on missions to evaluate what was happening in Britain, uh, to get another view rather than Kennedy's view. And, and Lee would, would team up with people like that to give them a totally different outlook on the situation. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. The Sorry two were, were delivering very different messages. Mm-hmm. So why did Lee see things more positively and 
How did he try to influence attitudes in the U.S.? Well, in terms of Lee was, I, I in many ways think Lee was like Churchill. We always think of Churchill as someone who believed in victory all the way, who always had that, we'll fight them on, on the beaches, we'll fight them in the streets rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Well, Churchill did that, but he did that very consciously, knowing that if he showed any doubt on that score about the, the ability of, of Britain to survive and to prevail, then it would be a lost cause. And, the, and Churchill did have his private moments of doubts. Lee was the same way. He felt it was essential that Britain, as the only holdout in Europe against the Nazi tide, had to survive. And that it was even in law, it was in the long run interest of the United States because he was convinced if Britain fell, the U.S. would be the next target for Hitler. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he he was not always a super optimist in in private. And there are many many notes in it. I go I point them out in my book where he he had his doubts and he felt that without you without ultimately the U.S. getting involved in the war war they could lose it, but in public. And in his dealings with other Americans, especially American correspondents, he kept sending the message, don't, don't be a little defeatist about this. Don't, don't keep telling your readers that London is devastated by the bombing because people are holding out and, and they will prevail. So he saw his mission as one of buttressing the image of Britain in the United States. So the United States did not give up on, on, on Britain and also uh, buttressing the, those in the administration who are trying to help Britain. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of partly a public relations war. There's that great anecdote that you have about um, inviting the journalist in. He's got a bunch of dictionaries on his desk. Yes. Um. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's my way. It was after, I think, something like 57 nights of straight German bombings during the Blitz. And he, and Lee was was really worried by these news accounts by American correspondents in London, which made it sound like the place was basically flattened. And he calls the journalists in, a lot of the famous correspondents, and he's got the stack of dictionaries. He said, you guys keep saying this place is devastated. Here's the definition of devastated. He reads off devastated. He said, look out the window, and I'm a soldier. I walk these streets. And this is not a devastated city. And, you know, that that is very effective. And he did walk the streets, by the way. He walked the streets during the bombings. And after he 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 once famously said something to his wife in a letter, he said, this is a time when when you have to wear life like a loose garment. You can't afford to be afraid. So as we move closer to war, FDR begins to look for ways to support the British uh, within the constraints of American public opinion and, I guess, even legislation. The solution he came up with um, was, of course, the Lend-Lease program. Uh, um, tell us about that and Lee's role in it. And then, of course, the, um, the ABC talks. Right. In January of 1941, there are these ABC talks, which ABC stands for America, Britain, Canada. And it's basically, it's great that the country has just happened to fall. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, yeah, I know. Canada, I know. I know. Yeah. It, it does help. Although America was technically not the country, it was the United States, but it, yeah. it, it worked. Yeah. Uh, 
But the, they were super secret talks held in Washington with delegation, military delegations from all three. And Lee came back from London to be the advisor to these talks to the Americans. But also, frankly, he had such good relationships with the British at that point. And they really, a lot of the, the Brits who were involved in the planning were really trusted him that he was there. And the, the interesting things about the talks, again, they were, they were super secret, not so much to keep the word from, from the Germans. That was not the worry. It was to keep word from the public and the isolationists who would mm -hmm. seize on it and say, look, you know, it, we're supposedly not involved in this war. And this planning is really minute planning for all the contingencies of war. And it, and it helped the U, U.S. become really ready to throw itself in fully once war was the one once it was involved in the war but also the whole buildup of the war where where then the Lend-Lease program kicks in and the basic idea of Lend-Lease was Churchill had told Roosevelt look it's great we can we can buy some equipment from you but we're running out of money we want to still get this equipment what do we do and and Roosevelt says we'll 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 do this we'll say we're we're leasing it to you. And, and, and he used this famous, in a fireside chat, he used the famous analogy, he said, if your neighbor's house is burning and he runs to you and says, give me your garden hose so I can try to, try to, try to drench it with water, you don't haggle about the price of the garden hose, you give him the hose and you worry about the garden hose later. So do you think that Lend-Lease really made much of a difference in the end? Of course, a lot of British shipping was being um, sunk, um, was it uh, really a material difference or was it more sort of psychological and political? It was both. I mean, it took a while for the pipeline to really get going. So in those early months of World War uh, of 1941, uh, it wasn't huge, uh, but there were hearings on Lend-Lease and those hearings were incredibly important. Lindbergh testified for the anti anti-Lend-Lease crowd for the America First movement. And he really compromised himself by saying, basically, it doesn't matter who, who wins this war, whether, it, whether it's Britain or the United States, let's just stay out of it and seem totally indifferent to the suffering already inflicted by the Nazis. Uh, and, but the supplies eventually ramped up in a huge way, was vital to to the ability of Britain to, to survive. And very soon after Germany invaded the Soviet Union, that same Lend-Lease uh, uh, device was used to, to offer uh, a large amount of supplies to the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and, the, and the whole argument about Lend-Lease was better, uh, better have those guys fight as, as, as effectively as possible so that when we get it, if we have to get into the fight, we are will be in a stronger position, and and Hitler will be in a weaker position. Now, in the end, of course, war was thrust on the U.S. on December seventh, nineteen forty-one, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. That changed everything, as far as Lee was concerned, right? Well, I think first of all, Lee, like many Brits were very impatient with, with Roosevelt as, as 1941 continued and the, the blitz continued and, 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 and uh, the sinkings of ships in the Atlantic continued. And, but Roosevelt really 
did not want to declare, be the one to declare war first. So in a way, the Japanese got, got the U.S. off the hook by, by Pearl Harbor. I mean, it was a brutal way to do it, of course. And then, but more importantly, four days later, Hitler, the U.S. has declared war on Japan before, after Pearl Harbor, but it had not declared war on, on Germany. And on December 11th, Hitler declares war on the United States. Yep. And that means that the, I, even isolationists like Lindbergh can are no longer claim that there's a, any reason why the U.S. can stay, stay out of this war. And so, of course, everybody stood, st- stood solidly behind the Roosevelt administration and, and the war effort. Lee was relieved. Uh, he, he knew the battle was still a long one ahead, just like as Churchill said when he came to the States shortly thereafter. But there was a sense that once the U.S. became involved in the war, and remember, at that point, the Soviet Union was finally in the war also because, because Germany, Hitler had just a, even more monumentally, stupidly invaded the Soviet Union. Suddenly, in the beginning of 1941, Britain had been alone against Germany. By the end of 1941, Germany is facing not just Britain, but the United States and the Soviet Union. And there is a sense that it's going to be a long war. But in the long run, there's no way Hitler can win this. And Lee himself is exhausted. He'd been going back and forth. He'd been he'd been juggling so many balls, so many visitors, uh, so many uh, secret missions that uh, the War Department recalled him to the U.S. and just said, you've got to take some leave. And, uh, and which he did briefly. And then he served in, in military intelligence. He, he helped train more troops, especially artillery units, which was his specialty during the war. Uh, and in 1946, 1946, he finally resigned his commission. So his real, the culminating moment in his life was that period in, in London. And he performed brilliantly but it's a it's a performance that very few people knew about, except for those in the know. It's what he's one of those characters who flew under the radar for the most part, but played a very significant role. Yeah. Well, excellent. I think that Lee really encapsulates everything that this podcast is about. Um, people who we probably haven't heard too much about, but had a um, marked impact on history and you've really brought him to life. Thank you. So you have uh, another book coming out in the spring. Tell us about that. Yes, uh, it's called uh, Saving Freud, uh, The Rescuers Who, Who Brought Him to Freedom. It's a, as the title implies, it's, it's, a, it's a story about Sigmund Freud and his life in Vienna. And uh, you know, Freud is one of these figures, everyone believes they know who he was and what he stood for, but there's so many aspects of his personality, his work that are not well known. And one of them is this, the group of people around him, people who were his patients and then his colleagues uh, who convinced him finally to get out of Vienna after the Anschluss, after, after the Nazi conquest of Austria and the incorporation of Austria into the Third Reich, uh, something that he did not want, he never wanted to leave Vienna, and he had to be almost pried out of there by, by this group of friends I describe in great detail. Uh, and, and, and then 
and then uh, they had to find a way to get Britain to accept him and his and and his and his family. It's uh, it, it's it's for me as a as a writer who's written a lot about this period of history. The the historical background is familiar, but the cast of characters was not, and it includes people like the the great grand niece of Napoleon. A woman by the name of Marie Bonaparte, who was one of wow. Freud's patients and followers, a Welsh doctor who became a major figure in this in the psychoanalytic movement, uh, the U.S. ambassador to France, uh, William Bullitt, who was a major figure in that period too. So it's fascinating to see all of these people come together and how they managed to save the man who is perhaps the most arguably the most famous uh, mid-20th century figure uh, or early 20th century figure in terms of certainly psychoanalysis, but it was seen as a major authority in, in, on the human condition. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Andrew, that uh, was really interesting. Uh, a lot has been written about this period, um, but this is a story I haven't heard about before. Thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Yeah, my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this week's show. If you have any questions or feedback, please reach out to me on Twitter at Lost, the letter N, History Pod. And be sure to check out my website, www.scottmillerauthor.com. We will see you next time.